Good evening. Good evening, everybody. Uh, on behalf of you, here, let's everybody take their seats, get settled. Uh, on behalf of United Nations Cinema, it is my pleasure to welcome you here tonight for the screening of The Chocolate Case. UN Cinema, created in 2007, and since its creation, we've shown more than 200 films in more than 20 cities to more than 100,000 people, and now tonight, a few more. We're very proud that Dr. Mary Martin, head of the LSE Ideas here at the, United, at the, at the London School of Economics, is our host again this evening. The film, and we have uh, one of uh, somebody very involved in the film here with us tonight, tells an important story of the relationship between business, the private sector, and human rights. And the timing couldn't be more perfect. Four days before International Human Rights Day, and in this year, which is the 70th anniversary of the signature of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This is a very important year for the United Nations and for the human rights community. We are very grateful for the Embassy of the Netherlands here in the United Kingdom for the support that they have provided for tonight's screening. And we're especially pleased and grateful and happy to see so many young people in the audience. Uh, we had a meeting of the United Nations Information Center directors last week uh, in New York. We had a meeting with the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, and he told us how important it was for us to be engaged with young people and for you to be involved with the work of the United Nations. So that's really a great thing, and I thank you all for coming. And it is now my pleasure to introduce uh, Brechia Schwachhofer, the Deputy Head of Mission for the Embassy of the Netherlands here in the United Kingdom, to make another introduction. Thank you very much. Yeah, and thank you uh, for that. Uh, and welcome, everybody, to this uh, event um, that we as Netherlands Embassy are very proud to co-organize with uh, Jonrik. Uh, LSE ideas um, uh, uh, and to mark Human Rights Day uh, next week. Um, and the theme uh, is, uh, yes, business and human rights and in particular uh, child uh, labor. And while in most European countries children uh, are able to go to school and develop themselves, worldwide there are still approximately 152 million children in child labor. And if you say 152 million, I uh, saw it again when this speech was written to me by uh, my wonderful colleagues. I thought that is an awful, awful amount. Uh, and especially as a mother of a young child, I find that appalling. Um, the Netherlands uh, government has specific policies to combat child labor, as well as a broader policy on business and human rights. All these policies flow from the Dutch commitments to, I'm sure you're familiar with, the Sustainable Development Goals. And in order to achieve these goals, there is also an important role for business. First and foremost, business must ensure that they are responsible actors. Um, they must have, a, have in place so-called due diligence policies with which they prevent and mitigate risks to people and our common planet. In 2013, the Netherlands was uh, the second country in the world to adopt a national action plan to um, implement the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. And we consulted with civil society and businesses and identified areas of action. And one of the areas of action was for the government to promote that businesses perform due diligence throughout their supply chains. Businesses across the world have made steps to incorporate due diligence into their business practice. So we do see that it works. 
And I'm sure that after the movie, uh, Mr. Buchholz, who sits there, will tell you more about how exactly um, his business does that through um, uh, the example of Tony Chocolonely. I always find it so difficult to <laughs> pronounce. A remarkable Dutch brand because it has not only thoroughly implemented due diligence, it has actually made responsible business conduct part of their business model. Uh, and the Dutch uh, government uh, is proud to support their child labor project. To tackle problems in a certain country or supply chains, civil society and business must work together. Therefore, the Netherlands has set up so-called responsible business conduct agreements with several actors in the Netherlands. So far, agreements have been concluded in several sectors, uh, and maybe some of you have heard about these. Uh, garments and te textiles, food products, banking, sustainable forestry, insurance, gold, and more are under negotiations with various sectors. Next to our focus on working with businesses in the supply chain, the government also combats child labor together with civil society and international organizations. We support the Dutch Coalition Against Child Labor in their approach to child labor free zones. The example of cacao farming you will see in the film, The Chocolate Case, is very realistic. 71% of child labor worldwide is concentrated in agriculture. And I hope the film and the following panel discussion will stimulate our thinking on further ways to combat this evil of child labor and for businesses to take their responsibility to prevent human rights abuses. I wish you all a very informative and lively evening. Thank you very much. Great, thank you very much. Well, um, what a super film. Um, again, welcome to everybody, and I hope as many of you as possible can stay for this uh, discussion that follows. Just to uh, give you an added incentive, we may have some takeaways at the end <laughs> for you. I wonder what they could be. Anyway. Um, a warm welcome to this very special panel uh, to commemorate, um, as Deborah said earlier, the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, which takes place on Monday. My name is Mary Martin. I'm the director of the UN uh, Business and Human Security program at LSE Ideas. Um, and I also want to thank again our partners, the Dutch Embassy and uh, UN itself, the Regional Information Center and UN Cinema, for helping us to bring uh, this event to the screen and this panel. Uh, let me make some introductions. Um, on my left, I have uh, the star, a star of the film, <laughs> who you might recognize, is Ayen Buchholt. And um, now- As he, she, yes, Tony Chocolonely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, Ayen has a, a, a title called Coco Game Changer at Tony's Chocolonely. We'll come back to that in a minute. Um, on his left is Mayolaine Boustra, who is the legal counsel for the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And on her left, Charlotte Williams, head of the Children's Rights and Business Unit at UNICEF UK. Uh, welcome to you all, and thanks for, for taking part. Um, 
With this film and in the discussion, what we want to explore is not only the idea that um, the practices of rights, the principles and the practices of human rights, which were set out uh, in the Universal Dere um, Declaration, that cornerstone document in 1948, um, but also how business, companies, and the things we consume in our lives in 2018 um, have an impact on human rights. And I think impact was certainly one aspect that came out in the film, uh, and perhaps the idea of responsibility as well. Um, just to say, I think you can follow us on Twitter. I don't know if there's hashtags. There's a hashtag there, I think. Um, and we're going to have a discussion, and we're going to try and wrap up um, by 9 o'clock, but uh, with some time for you to ask questions of, of all our panelists. So let me begin with Ayen, uh, this wonderful, aspirational job title. Um, how did you come by it, and what does it mean? And tell us a bit about impact, I think, as well. Yeah. So thank you. So uh, it's great being here tonight, and uh, yeah, in my job as a Coco Game Changer, uh, I'm allowed to think with Tony's about how we're going to change the rules of the game of the global chocolate industry. Uh, as if you have seen in the movie, it's quite complicated, and we started from scratch, and uh, many people said, okay, how can you be so huge in your mission while you're so tiny? And then very often we take in mind the quote of Anita Roddick from The Body Shop, she says, once you think too small to have an impact, try going to bed with a mosquito in the room. We want to be the mosquito who keeps the chocolate giants awake. And my role within Tony's is to make the strategy, how are we going to accomplish our mission? And if you see this paper, which you got, you see there are three pillars, which is our roadmap. And actually, this is in short what we're working on. We want to raise as much awareness as possible on the consumers and producers. We want to set the example in our supply chain that you can do things differently, that you don't have to be hiding behind giants or behind the nature force of the market. No, we produce a bar of chocolate. We are responsible for what we're putting in there. But the most important part of our pillar is that we want to inspire others to act. We want to change the industry. Our mission is not about just our chocolate, but about changing the industry. And step by step, we're getting there. And of course, Tony, or Tony he can be really uh, critical because things are going too slowly. But we're really making steps. Um, tell us a bit about the bars. How many are you selling now, and where can we buy them? <laughs> okay. So we started off with just uh, 5,000 produced. And last year, we sold over 25 million bars in the Netherlands. And we are now the market leader in the Netherlands, and we're so proud on that. Not because we're so big, but because we show that you can have impact while being scalable. So there's no reason for any commercial company to not act in this way. Well, we show that you can make a profit, that you can be the market leader, and that from the second week of January, we will be in the UK. <laughs> Charlotte, let me turn to you. Your job at UNICEF UK is to work with companies and help them integrate 
um, protection for children, uh, children's rights into their policies and practices. Um, what, what can companies be doing? What, what do they need to do from, to take up this example and the scalability idea? I think that was where I was going to start. So um, I guess my reflections on the film was you've got this absolutely amazing product with traceability from bean to bar to consumer. Um, and I think Tony Chocoloni also issued itself its own kind of challenge, which is, you know, well, how do we take this product, which is quite a niche product, um, and take those supply chain traceability models and make them mass market and bring it to a mass market uh, consumer? And I definitely don't have the answers to that, but actually, you know, it, improving traceability within the supply chain will be part of the answer. Um, I guess to properly answer that question, you really need to understand, though, what is really driving the issues of child labor within the the cocoa supply chain. Um, and the reality is the farm gate price would definitely be one part of that. Um, but you can't really tackle child labor issues without looking at the whole context of how children's lives look like in the cocoa supply chain. Um, and the reality is that's, that's a really complicated issue. Um, UNICEF did a child rights impact assessment a couple of years ago in the, in the cocoa sector in Cote d'Ivoire where we didn't necessarily go out to look at the issue of child labor but really just tried to ask that question, well, what do children's lives look like in the cocoa sector? Um, and trying from that to really understand some of the root cause drivers of child labor. Um, and what we found was really complicated. So we definitely found that the farm gate price was, um, was one issue, um, but there was a whole multiple um, challenges uh, that were linked to the kind of cocoa supply chain. Um, some of those were child protection issues like child labor. Um, we also found really surprising things like birth registration um, was one of the drivers of child labor, which I know sounds quite strange, but um, in Cote d'Ivoire, you only have 40 to 60% of children that are registered at birth. In order to gain access into secondary education, you need to be registered. Um, and that birth registration gives you access to lots of different social um, benefits, including education. And so there was a real disincentive to move on to secondary education without having birth registration. Um, and so that was, and without being in education, that then um, puts you at a higher risk of child labor. So it's just one of the examples that we found which was quite surprising to us and was very much linked to the kind of cocoa sector um, and its structure um, and the informal structure of the, of the sector, but it went much further than just thinking about the kind of farm gate price. And, and sorry, because I, I have to interact here a bit, because too many companies says, say, yes, it is so complicated, so we will help get, getting children their birth certificates. And that's really good, eh? that's really good but they don't change the core of their business. So what's the need of a birth certificate and building a school when you pay the farmers bullocks and they cannot send the children to school? And it still really makes me angry. Yeah. I think perhaps one of the shocking things, uh, and I don't know if you found it surprising about the film, uh, was the idea of the lack of transparency. Why is it so difficult that all this kind of uh, documentation, certification of where the beans come from, and which is in the gift or the control, one would imagine, of, of the buyers and then the, 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 the cooperatives and so on. Why is that such a difficult problem? Um, I don't know that I can answer the full question, but certainly I, I guess the example in the film was Barry Calibo. These are massive, massive uh, commodity um, houses that just don't have the traceability in the supply chain at the moment back to farm. Mm. And if I, I, I'm not trying to put you particularly on the spot, but I know that you worked for Tesco before your present role at UNICEF. 
And I think uh, companies that are trying, the point was made at the end of the film, that you know, we're dealing with people who are, are not bad people, they're decent people, they want to do the right thing. Um, but is behaving responsibly, uh, from your experience, is, it a, uh, is there a business case for that, or is it simply about being nice and good ethics and perhaps some public pressure and, and NGO pressure? I think reputational risk is going to be a massive driver for companies to implement traceability systems. Um, there, there may also be a kind of commercial benefit in some areas. Um, currently, the cocoa sector is is not a productive sector, it's not a sustainable sector, so there might be a security of supply challenge for some companies. Um, but the reality is, more often than not, a commercial argument is difficult to make in these, in these circumstances. And actually... Businesses have obligations under international human rights law, um, and they should be meeting those obligations, and governments should be putting the incentives in place for businesses to meet their obligations. So that's actually why we are doing what we do. We want to show the commercial model, mm. and uh, that we grow year by year with 50%. That says something. Mm. And um, uh, too many companies are, are doing risk management as part of their corporate uh, responsibility. responsibility, we think it has to be in the core of your business. And uh, last year, farm gate prices went down with 30%. Well, 90% of all farms are living already in poverty. Farm gate prices went down with 30%. And at the same time, chocolate prices remained the same. So chocolate prices are this, farm gate prices does this, so where does the money go? You may answer it. More than 3.5 billion pounds last year evaporated. I think the, the, one of the other issues that comes up that you've both touched on is this idea of responsibility. How do you actually implement? How do you enact, if you like, responsibility? Can I come to you, Maria Lime? Because it is government's responsibility also uh, to protect, um, uh, protect citizens, protect children and so on. I wondered how you react to the film. Um, and is it, um, this was an initiative by a group of, of Dutch journalists. Shouldn't this be something that the government through regulation is actually tackling, the issue of child slavery and child rights? Okay, first, my reaction to the movie or movie film, uh, I think it was maybe, as most of you, more as a consumer of chocolate, uh, feeling, wow, I really don't think enough about the products I buy, and, um, and also feeling it's amazing what you can do if you are just tenacious enough um, as a simple normal person. So that's what I take away from the film, thinking, okay, I really need to rethink some things. Um, but speaking about the role of government, um, if only it were so easy that by regulating things we could make everything perfect, we would definitely do it <laughs> immediately. And um, as uh, Charlotte al already said, there are already rules in place. I mean, since Tony Chocolonely started and since the end of this film, we adopted in the UN the uh, guiding principles on responsible on business and human rights. So um, it is true that we as governments are thinking about should we regulate more, should we um, uh, regulate due diligence obligations by companies, but that, believe me, as a lawyer, it is very complicated to do that in the right way that is practical and enforceable. Um, but as I said, I think many rules are, are already in place. We know 
for a large part what companies should do. The big question is how do we get them to do it? And as a government, we do have a role there. I think we should use the levers that we have. For instance, um, as a government, we provide a lot of services to our companies that trade abroad. Uh, we give them credit export facilities. We um, provide investment protection. Uh, and we can use those levers to tell them, look, we only give you that protection if you behave responsibly. And we are working on that. Like Tony Schiocoloni, we're not there yet. We cannot say it's 100% guaranteed that everything is all right, but we are working on it. And one more thing I would like to say is, um, Brechtje already mentioned it, the Dutch government does have a very interesting initiative where we don't simply regulate, but we go to businesses, we talk to them and we say, look, we want to work together with you to make things better. And we have uh, a number of sectors we identified where we saw there's a big risk of human rights violations. We went to talk to the companies and um, we entered into agreements with them, together with civil society, trade unions, and we said we want to work together to make your chain more transparent, uh, to see what is going on, and then to try to work together to make it better. It's only started a few years ago, so I think we need time to see where it goes, but I do think it is a very promising approach, especially for smaller companies, because for them it is very complicated to get um, that transparency that's so important. Yeah. So as we say at Tony's, only together we make slavery 100% a norm in chocolate and all steps help. But until now, all voluntary commitments from the industry have failed. The first one from 2001 has failed. I think even when it is complicated, governments have to set the norm. And when it is complicated to, to bring it into practice, okay, let's work on that. But I think really governments have to put uh, the norm and set the bar higher than it is right now. And I wonder, we talk about governments, but uh, can one government make a difference? Uh, how can you work through? I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, the 1948 Universal Declaration, perhaps a high point in multilateral um, initiative and, and solidarity. We're in perhaps a very different climate now, um, uh, and there seems to be a bit of a retreat from that sort of international norms, rules-based order. Um, the Dutch government clearly is committed, has policies on this, but can you act alone or how can you work with, with other, uh, other governments? I think it's simple. You cannot act alone. This is too big and too complex, so that is not possible. Uh, but I do agree. I think we do have uh, an obligation. Well, we have an obligation by law to protect um, our own citizens, uh, to protect their human rights, but also to make sure that our companies do not commit human rights. Uh, violations. So yes, we do have a big responsibility and we need to work together. And you're right, it is, it is a very complicated uh, climate right now. But I think, especially in the field of business and human rights, there is a movement. It's, it's starting, it's not where we want to be yet, but you see more and more governments uh, adopting legislation, which is also still, there can, you can give a lot of criticism and say, oh, but this is not that right, this is not right. I think we are learning and we're trying to find the right model that works, that is practical and does have an impact on the ground. I don't know. It's a dangerous thing to say here tonight, but there is a place in Brussels where governments work together. <laughs> <laughs> and I was allowed to speak to the European Parliament two weeks ago exactly about this case. So you see it is on the agenda and I really applaud it. And also I applaud the UK government with the, have the, the anti-slavery law which came into action last year. Uh, indeed it's not perfect and indeed how are you going to make 
companies take responsibility about slavery in their supply chains, but the least steps are being taken. Bring us a bit up to date, if you can, Ayan, because we saw on the film that you had conversations, uh, or uh, Toyn had uh, conversations with Nestle, obviously Barry Calabot, um, uh, even Ben and Jerry's, although I know that wasn't a, um, a chocolate company per se. Do you think things have moved on in the five years or, or so, or actually longer, that the, the span of the film? So things are moving, but way too slowly. And when we started being the first fair trade certified company in the Netherlands, everybody said it's impossible. And we showed it was possible. And six years ago, we started with traceability, and everybody said that's impossible because it's too expensive. Yes, maybe it's expensive in your current business model. But now even Mars has committed to be tra fully traceable in 2025. Right now, we calculate the price we pay to the farmers, not based on the market, but based on the needs of the farmers. What is needed to get him above a line to get a decent living, which is in the 1948 treaty, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not a legal guy, but mm -hmm. okay. So it is there. <laughs> so we try to bring that in practice. And now you see, it is getting, uh, becoming a hot topic in the whole industry. I was allowed to sit on the World Cocoa Conference in Berlin to talk about this subject. It's not there yet, but we're getting there. And last week we announced that we will work with the biggest supermarkets in the Netherlands to uh, purchase cocoa together for their chocolate bars. So we're working actually now with the competition to make things different. Whoa, that's for some people difficult to grasp. But, but really, we're getting there slowly. Can I, can I say something cynical in this respect? I think, cynically, your success is probably why they want to talk to you. And I think that is a big point. We need to... Um, make use of the fact that businesses have certain sensitivities that often have to do with money, and we need to use that. Uh, to, so to, that's to not cynical. I think that's the correct <laughs> version of the truth. Uh, and uh, as we say, uh, where, where, as long as for the chocolate industries or any company, uh, money is a goal in itself, for us it will be the means, and we can show that you can be profitable. And what, when that makes them move, great. And when they, they see the impact and that you get so much more value out of it. Great, let's work it together. And step by step, we're getting there. Charlotte, I mean, you're working with, with companies all the time on this specific area of children's rights anyway. What, what do you sense that they come back to you with? What's, I mean, you talked about the complications that are involved in one particular industry, the cocoa industry, and and so on, uh, and, and how it's produced. But uh, again, are there things that, that they can do that are perhaps easier? I think one of the biggest challenges that we have, and it's really applicable to smallholder context, is that within smallholder context, the workplace is also the community. And so the UN guiding principles really delineates between government's duty to protect and business's responsibility to respect. And they're very clearly almost separate. And the reality is when you get into a smallholder context, those two come together really quite closely. Um, and it's not easy to distinguish where business's responsibility to respect starts and government's duty to protect ends because what you really need to address some of these root causes of child rights issues, yes, is definitely looking at the price at Farmgate, but it is also all of these other systems um, that are as a result of, of poverty. Um, and so, and I guess one reflection, for, again, from our kind of impact assessment we did was that companies underestimate um, strategic 
interventions in areas that don't directly relate to them. So one example of this is um, prevention of health um, or healthcare um, and prevention of infectious diseases. And actually huge amounts of productivity is lost in the farm because of health issues. And so companies should start to think about investment into these um, systems as as, co- as a commercial driver, um, and I think probably we could uh, do more to make that argument to companies. But it does get very, very tricky, and the line between government and, and business isn't always clear. Um, and so w- what you need is more of these kind of shared responsibility models where you, know, you do work with your peers and you work with uh, other governments and we work with other international companies to recognize that we all have a shared responsibility um, to support children. Um, and, and we need to think of new innovative ways of doing that because ultimately what's what's we're trying at the moment just isn't working which sort of brings us back to where the film started very amusingly which was to put also a responsibility on all of us who eat chocolate you know as consumers um so i am what you know how do you mobilize that sort of consumer pressure much more or is it is it really out of our hands in the end despite the um, the filmic quality of that so i think too easily supermarkets and brands are pointing the fingers to the consumer because there's no demand we cannot do anything else no we produce this bar of chocolate so we are responsible for what we put in it and we want to make a profit with it so we make we better make our model work and in the same time, indeed, consumers can put pressure on companies and can make different choices with their baskets. And our story tells our story. Uh, our bar tells our story, actually. So in the in the in the super of, in the film, you saw already maybe our chocolate bar. Sorry, guys, I will not eat it in front of you. <laughs> so if you look at our bar, it's divided in unequal pieces. And a normal chocolate bar is divided in equal squares, isn't it? So we think our chocolate bar tells our story. The chocolate world is unequally divided. And until we fulfilled our mission, the bar looks like this. And still, every day, people calling us, my children are fighting, who's getting the biggest chunk? (laughs) And we can explain our story, and the people can, again, tell it to others. So we really need you as ambassadors to tell the story and use the chocolate. Um, great. Well, let's throw it open to the audience because I'm sure there'll be lots of questions arising from that. So um, if you would like to ask a question or make a short comment, um, I'll take uh, maybe a couple at a time. We've got two on the, my right-hand side here. Could you tell us who you are briefly? Hi. Um, hi, my name is Ditya. I'm a first-year student at LSE. Um, thank you all for the, for the talk, by the way, and the video. It was really it's really interesting, um, and it really was pretty eye-opening. I'd, I'd never thought of it. I'd never thought it was that deep before. Um, my question was more about um, the, the business model. Do you think that the fact that you were able to be profitable while also, you know, being creating good society, do you think that do you think that's preferable uh, to like a minimum wage or a government imposing that? Because clearly, you, you guys still were able to make money. You guys are you know the Netherlands' biggest uh, chocolate brand now. Do you think that that is preferable to having like minimum wages and having sanctions um, on? Like, do, do, yeah, yeah, I, I see your point. So it goes hand in hand. Of course, you need, as I said, governments to setting the norm, and you need minimum standards uh, because there will always be some laggards not taking their responsibility, and everybody has to move. So you have to have the carrot and the stick.
And we have the front furnace where we work together, and we have luggage where we have to set norms for to get above that standard. But indeed, uh, I think to motivate the industry best is to show that your business model works. One down here. Hi. Um, I'm actually, um, I work throughout the supply chain from the farmer to the trader to the importer and the chocolate maker. And I think I have two questions. Uh, I mean, to two people, to Arjen and to Marjolaine. Uh, no, sorry, Charlotte. And I'm not sure you can answer everything, but I want to pose it now to you because, um, first of all, in the film and in your presentation, I didn't get a sense of um, how much you were paying the farmer. And if that is near the ICCO price, and if that extends to the sustainability in the environment, because the idea of the farmer as one person is actually not true. It's a complex situation. The landowner is different the worker, the migrant worker, the processor, and that wasn't, I didn't get a sense of that in the film, and maybe this is your second film. Um, and the, question, the second question is, maybe the second film should move out of Africa, because chocolate comes from all over the world now. <laughs> um, and then the, the question for Charlotte was that, um, why is it that it only focuses on the child when the supply chain includes the woman and you know to get into the process of the bean getting into the fermentation table you actually need the women to sort it and to to do the grading and all that so maybe it should be a wider question as well okay thank you quite a lot in there should we Charlotte do you want to begin in reverse and yeah. talk about is it just the children or is there a ecosystem there? So I think one of, I mean, it's definitely an ecosystem. And I guess what we would encourage businesses to do is not just look at kind of single issues or single rights holders, but to ask a very broad question, which is essentially what, what social impact is my business having? And who are the rights holders that are being impacted by my business and my supply chain? Um, and and I guess part of that is also recognizing the, that within that, uh, those impacts, there'll be particularly vulnerable groups of rights holders. Um, and children are one of those vulnerable groups of right holders. So I guess our message is to businesses is to understand your broad social impacts and all of the right holders that involves. But the UN guiding principles also say that you should carry out heightened due, due diligence with respect to vulnerable groups. Um, it doesn't elaborate hugely on who those vulnerable groups are, but it does, it does say that they are people like women, children, migrants, disabled people, um, those of religious minorities, indigenous people. Um, and so I guess that's our sort of message to companies that, yes, absolutely look at all of the rights holders affected by your businesses but also very much make sure that you, you are mindful that um, some rights holders have additional vulnerabilities as well. Does that answer your question? Ian, I suppose we all would like to know, is there going to be a second film, and would you go outside Africa? Tony's the sequence. There were two questions about yes. price in Africa. Yeah, and so we started working in West Africa because 70% of all cocoa comes from West Africa. And the whole mainstream industry sources from West Africa. And there are just like, at this moment, two or three companies worldwide who make more than 75% of all recipes of all chocolate bars you eat. Just three companies. And they all source from West Africa. And the social problems in the cocoa industry are the biggest there. So we really want to show an impact in West Africa for the mainstream industry 
that you can do things differently before we move on. But we are in contact with other origins. So we know, we like also to learn from what's happening in other sides of the, of the world. Then about the price, last year, we calculate our price, what is the need of a farmer to send his children to school? What is the price for that? What is the price for med medication? What is the price to get a decent, indeed, payment of your employees? What is needed to, to, have, a, a, your, a, to have a living income? And then we calculate that through the possible volume he could produce. And then we pay that as a price to the cooperative. So they can work together and get also cash together directly to the farmer. And last year we paid more than 40%, more than 40% on top of the normal price they got in Ivory Coast. And that translates only to 2 or 3% price increase on consumer level. <coughs> So any company who says that it's too expensive is not looking at the numbers right, if you ask me. Just a point of clarification, and maybe our questioner knows the answer to this. The slavery practice, the kind of practices that we heard about on the film, do, we, do you think that they are particularly prevalent in Africa or it's a feature of the, of the industry worldwide? It, it's... The, the bad news is it is a worldwide problem in general. Uh, you have the Global Slavery Index, which was published just a couple of months ago. And uh, if I'm right, more than 25 million victims of modern slavery are there, most of them in Asia. In Ghana, you have it in gold and fishery. And in the Netherlands, more than 30,000 victims. Yeah, I mean, it's a broad... It's, it's, a, it's a general problem. problem yeah. But we are here to show the example in cocoa. And I'm in touch with other industries because, of course, we have to tackle it everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I think we have a question in the middle at the back. Yeah. And then we'll go to the... Thank you very much for the movie. So I'm a student at the LSE, and I'm studying African development. Um, in the film, I did not see the marketing boards. So theoretically, the marketing boards in most of these African countries are responsible for the state and buying the cocoa on behalf of the state. And it's, it's an institution with a very long history. So that in combating the slavery within this industry, in addition to combating it in the courts in the Netherlands, I didn't see any attempt to involve the African state or the, the government institutions that work through these marketing boards so that at least they can also be a part of fighting the slavery within the supply chain. Because I think ultimately, if the states are strengthened, then they can, there can be a much more broader systemic you know, change in the, in the industry. Okay, I'm gonna take one more in the middle. Um, before we, do you want to as well, that last question? Yeah, I think Hi, I'm Moham. I'm a master's student um, studying urbanization and development. Um, my question is that, um, like Ions mentioned before, some things are not calculated in the reality. Like when you give more money to the farmers, it does not necessarily go to the children's education. And there are so much uncertainty and complexity in reality. How's business navigating through that complex reality? Like for instance, if we now demand more chocolate, there'll be 
possibly extensive um, environmental degradation related to the agriculture? And how's the business as well as the state taking considerations of that? Thanks. Okay, thank you. Do you want to answer the question about, did you, did you talk to government? You must talk to government. Very much so. So to, to, to make it uh, clear for everybody, in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, the government set the price per season what farmers should receive. And they base it on their forecast what will be the commercial market in the year after. And they set a lot of regulations. And indeed, we are in good contact with them because it took us two years to get our traceable cocoa out of Ghana and to negotiate that with the government institutions. And we really have to work together. But when uh, a government or any other stakeholder is, is getting, reacting more slowly than, or slow than we, we are hoping for, that does not mean we have to lean back. Then we get into action ourselves also. Uh, at this moment, uh, uh, the foundation uh, which we support, the Chocoloni Foundation, is also supporting some civil society organizations to give a farmer's voice in, in West Africa uh, towards the governments. So I really see an important role for the government there. And the second thing, sorry, about the complexity is about, we see the coke industry actually, and every time I discover something else, it's like peeling off an onion. You feel a different, you find a different layer and sometimes it makes you cry. But that, that should not make you stop. And indeed, uh, when it comes to prices, there are a lot of complexities. So we thought, okay, we pay a better price to farmers. But then you see, if farmers get a better price, hey, they're businessmen. So sometimes they cut down more forests, so you get more deforestation because they're motivated mm -hmm. to grow more cocoa. Yeah. So you have to not do things just as a one issue. And we think every company has to take into account five principles of cooperation, five sourcing principles. Full traceability, because then indeed you can check on the deforestation and you know where your cocoa comes from. A living income price. Long-term relations so you can build together on the community and you can work together, not every year going to another city or another village. Work on strong farmer organizations so you can work on the complexity but also on their capacities and on professional farming so that they may be not only dependent on cocoa alone. So you cannot do things... In, in, in splendid isolation. You have to do all five. And if you forget them, check our annual report. Um, Charlotte, though this is something I guess comes up a lot in your work with companies. It's almost too big a problem. Perhaps they don't want to take on the whole difficulty that the question uh, referred to, that you know, if you're paying more um, to the farmer, does it necessarily actually impact on, on, on children's rights? I mean, how... How do you deal with that and help them navigate? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's definitely a tendency to feel so overwhelmed at the scale of the challenge. I know our colleague kind of at, at first kind of said 152 million children in situations of child labour. That is a huge number. And I can definitely understand and sympathise, I guess, with the idea that that then leads to paralysis. Um, but obviously, you know, we can't let that happen. And, and part of our job is to very much make the case to businesses that actually know, you know, they have responsibilities to their supply chain. And as, as I say, one of the other challenges that we have are these big developmental issues because, you know, you can't tackle child labor as a single issue. You really do, you really do have to think about issues of birth registration, education, farm gate, deforestation. Um, how do you increase the, 
um, the productivity of a smallholder farm without leading to increased deforestation. Um, and, and, you need to, and that's why you do need uh, government alongside businesses, alongside international organizations and civil society to come together to really try and find solutions. And the more you can do that, I guess, as, as peers um, um, and as multi-stakeholder platforms, um, I think the easier that becomes um, because the reality is otherwise if you try and do it by yourself, there are no solutions. There's just not going to be an answer to, to the challenges that, that companies face by themselves. So it's only really by encouraging engagement in these multi-stakeholder platforms to tackle these big, big developmental issues that we can start to make some change. Um, a question uh, yes. in the middle and then uh, one on the end there. Yeah. Um, I was a student here many years ago, <laughs> as you might gather. Um, um, very interested in the earlier part of the comments were around the fact that the farmers didn't get the bonuses. The capacity for fraud there must be evident, you know, when there's a chain of money moving through the system. Do your farmers now get the bonuses and how do you ensure that that happens and so the money gets to the people who really need it? So thank you very much, first of all, for the discussion. I'm Fe it's here. Yeah. I'm Fernanda. I'm PhD candidate in environmental policy and development here at LSE. Uh, I would love to hear from you, actually, any of you, basically, on your views or perceptions on the role of consumer information tools, such as eco-labeling, in providing better information to consumers. Because from the, from the movie, you could see that uh, simply by having the fair trade label there doesn't mean anything. I mean, not anything, but not everything, basically. So if you could just react to that. Thank you very much. Do you want to deal with that one? About, um, I just wonder if, if, again, if there's a role for, for governments here in, in sort of the, taking the last question first. Um, uh, things like labeling and, again, transparency and so on. Is there more that um, governments either singly or, or together could do on that in, in terms of consumer information? I think maybe there is, yes. Um, I think um, I, especially this movie made very clear how big the role of consumers can be. And the fact that Tony Schokolonli is the market leader in the Netherlands actually shows, I think, that there's a big demand from consumers to be able to buy guilt-free. Because we do like to buy things, we do like to eat chocolate, and we do like to feel good about it and not feel guilty when we do. So, um, but in preparation for this session, actually, I went online and I, I wanted to check, okay, so what information can you get as a UK customer on the products you can buy here? And um, maybe you can inform me, because I'm, I'm fairly new here, but I could find one website where you had to pay a membership fee to get the information about brands. And um, that got me thinking, thinking, okay, maybe we do have a role as government, or at least we should think about, can we help to make that transparency better so that at, at least the information is more accessible for consumers? That being said, I do know that as the Dutch government, we, we support a number of certification in, initiatives and accreditation schemes. And the problem there is that often it does involve a lot of money to get it right. And for some companies, that is a big hurdle, and especially um, small-scale uh, farmers. So it is very tricky. It's not my field of expertise. But as I said, it did get me thinking that maybe that's something we should explore. Yeah. Oh, ah, yeah, and this question which we saw in the film about, which again was perhaps a, a sort of real uh, shocking aspect of it, the, the fraud, you know, the, the, the bonuses not getting paid, 
And I think, you know, anybody who's worked in, in, in the field sees that in, in different sort of manifestations. Have you been able to make that any better? And if so, how? So, most of the products you buy as fair trade or any other certification is, they are bought as through the mass balance system compared to green energy. You have a windmill in the North Sea, but you don't know if the energy from that windmill really enters your home. That's also with cocoa. A farmer produces some more sustainable cocoa, put it in a big bulb of cocoa, and at the other hand, a, a, a company can take 100 kilos out of that belt and get the label. So if you don't know where your cocoa comes from, you can never take full responsibility. And because now we know where our cocoa comes from, we can make agreements with the cocoa competition we work with. So before a season starts, a proposal has been made after discussions with the farmers how the premium is going to be spent that year. And that is spent on topics which together add up to the, 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 the goals of that competition in a five-year plan, in a strategic plan. And within this uh, plan, at least 50% of the premium goes directly or indirectly, maybe through fertilizer because that's cheaper when you buy it on scale, directly to the farmers. And at the end of the year, there will be an additional check. So we go to random places at, at farmers, and uh, we have also external people who check that with us to see if the, 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 the slips and the, the, the cash books of the cooperatives and the farmers have really the same amounts. So that's how we check it. But of course, eh, uh, we're not uh, police, and we don't want to be police. We want to work out of trust. And sometimes things are not perfect, but... That's how we check it. I'm going to take one last round of questions. Gosh, I've got a lot. Uh, one here. Can we get four in? Two, three, four. Try and make them short, and we can wrap up. Hi. My name is Deborah, and I work in the food industry. Um, my question uh, is for Arian. How do you think you can use um, social media and digital marketing to spread uh, help you to spread the cause. Okay, thank you. Um, one here, you've got the mic? Yeah? yeah. Hi, uh, Lucrezia, I work for BCS Consulting. So I had a question for Ventar Panin because you mentioned uh, regulations and how it's difficult sometimes to present a business case that then push businesses to apply these changes. Um, but in a lot of industries, you see with regulations that there is a case made out of the cost of complying against the cost of not complying, because if not, let's say, regulators will impose fines. So I was wondering, why do you think it's so hard when it comes to regulations regarding human rights for that to have such a case, and why that's not persuasive enough for them? Hi, my name is Sarah. Um, uh, I work in financial communication. Um, my question is for Arjun. I think you have a super interesting job, but probably a difficult one too. Um, so I just wanted to ask how, um, I, it wasn't really clear in the movie whether you um, spend uh, months in um, um, Africa, in Ghana, I think, or if you actually, you're based 
in your home country, but you travel there every month. So how do you kind of ensure that the communication is there? Um, secondly, um, I could see that you spoke the language that the farmers speak, so there was no language barrier. I think that's super important because um, at the start, we see Toon um, go to Africa for the first time, and he's not able to communicate um, directly. Um, so you can see that awkwardness, which you don't have, and the farmers feel very comfortable. So, um, yeah, to what extent do you think this, you know, not having this language barrier is one of the things that's actually making this whole um, journey a success? Okay, one final one. To... <coughs> My name is Manuela, and I'm a master's student here. I also have a question for Aryan uh, about the future of Tony Chocoloni and its mission. I read in the news last week that the director of Tony Chocoloni said that it's thinking about being bought by Nestle or Mars to have a bigger impact. Um, how do you see that, and how do you see that relating to the mission? Okay, thank you. Um, nice. <laughs> <laughs> tackle the cost of compliance and the question here? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. Um, I think that case is being made more and more. It's definitely not strong enough yet, but I think it is getting there. And things like the Modern Slavery Act, which came about in 2015, which requires businesses with a particular turnover to report on what they're doing to identify and address um, potential uh, modern slavery is one way that actually businesses are now being more and more confronted by the kind of reputational impact of having things like slavery in their supply chains. Um, so I think that kind of cost case is being made, um, but the challenge is there's not always a direct correlation between um, between you know what gets in the media and the, sh and the share price of that company. One of the additional challenges when it comes to issues around children, as particularly um, as stakeholders, is that actually often their voices aren't heard. Um, and the reality is it's only really these big um, instances of child labor and child trafficking that, that make the news. In the vast majority of businesses, they will still have an impact on children's lives. But that, but that those children's voices aren't heard. Um, and so it's very hard to make the kind of commercial case when, when the stories just aren't getting out there. That's why I think it was so interesting having those sort of testimonies from the... Mm. From the yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Ayolaine, you wanted to say... Yeah, no, I just, I just thought that the question was also about why is it so difficult to regulate this and just simply tell companies you have to comply and otherwise, you know, we give you a penalty or um, you're liable for damage. The big problem is that... Um, the major idea of human guiding principles is that companies are best suited to look into their business chain to see what's going on, to see what the risks are, and then to make plans to address those risks. That they do that much better than government officials who don't know the business that well and who have to look at 100 other companies as well. Um, and so then the question becomes, how are you going to regulate that in law? How are you going to... And that is a big debate going on right now. Can you uh, come up with a form of mandatory due diligence where you can still give companies that flexibility and the space they need to do it well um, and still make them feel the heat that they have to do it? Um, so that's what we're struggling with. And uh, I think most or countries right now opt for a system where you uh, oblige companies to report on what they do. Um, but there we see again, I mean, that's one of the criticisms on the Modern Slavery Act is that it's not being enforced and that some companies do it, some don't. There's not a, a, a central registry where you can check what they are reporting on. So just to give you a context to why this is a really complicated issue and if we could regulate it in a way that 
would work, we... <laughs> you would have done we would, the same. Yes, yeah. we would, yeah. yeah. But it's also sometimes changing your way of thinking. So it's quite interesting that if a cons when uh, we look at health issues for consumers, suddenly companies can take all regulations and bring it into practice. And there's law that you don't get sick from your meat. But if a farmer gets sick of producing your product, then we cannot do anything about it. Think about it. Different perspective. Um, three last questions for you. Uh, can you use uh, social media and digital marketing? How do you work in the language? Is that uh, important? And, and are you going to sell out to Nestle? <laughs> okay. I have minus 30 seconds, so that is going to be Social media, uh, we don't do any paid advertisements. We don't do any paid media. We really want people to tell our story because we want to have serious friends who can change the industry together. And we use a lot of social media while doing so, but never paid. Second. Uh, was <laughs> was um, the language oh, and language. how you work. So you can only work together if you respect each other and see each other as equal human beings. So also in the areas where I don't work myself, and that's even because we grow, it's getting better. So we have now a Ghanaian team and an Ivorian team who speak, speak also the local tribal languages. So it's really of utmost importance also to understand what are the real issues and to get trust together. Then about the, the sale out, sorry, it's not going to happen yet. Um, but we have always said we want to show impact. We want to change the mainstream industry. And once, and that's not the case right now, but... Uh, 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 Nestle comes to our office and he says, we promise to do for all our chocolate brands exactly the same what you do for your chocolate right now. We purchase from now on according to Tony's standards. Oh, then I'm pretty much in for some uh, talks. <laughs> Great. Um, thank you very much for all your questions and, uh, and for staying with us. Thank you most of all to my uh, excellent panelists for a really great discussion. This is uh, the last event uh, by LSE Ideas this term and this year, I guess, but please look on our website. We've got lots more coming up in the new year. As you go out, you will uh, see there are people with feedback forms. Uh, please, if you can, fill them in. It really helps us that we can tailor events in future uh, to your interests. But would you join me in thanking our panelists for a really good Sorry. I have one last assignment. So you go home with some chocolate, share it equally, and tell our story.